Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. We had a good conversation last week talking about poetry. And at the end of that conversation, you mentioned three debates. The first debate being over the nature of Jesus. The second debate being over the nature of the Holy Spirit. And then you mentioned the third debate is yet to be settled. And that is the debate over human nature. So very curious uh, yeah, where we'll go with that, but I, I'll turn it over to you. So am I, <laughs> what were you, you know, how does that, I guess, how does that connect to, to poetry? How does that connect to mm-hmm. art? You mentioned seeing beauty, um, seeing through beauty and not letting beauty itself be the idol. Um, so yeah, how does that, how does that relate to human nature? Okay, good. Um, yes, three great debates. Uh, as Pat said, Jesus' nature, the Holy Spirit's nature, and then human nature. So what this has to do, big picture, with poetry is uh, similar to the claim that Ian McGilchrist makes in his book, The Master and His Emissary. McGilchrist says over the last 500 years with this debate over human nature, the cardinal tenet of the faith, that is, the word became flesh, was reversed to the word the flesh became word so by that our faith which was based in told through our body and our body being poetry and motion was narrowed to prose which simply means text so we went from our bodies telling god's story to simply text telling God's story and all the poetry and all the beauty, much of it fades away. We end up with a didactic faith, a faith that I would call is appeals mostly to rationalism and rationality. Now that's different than reason. Reason is a virtue. Rationality is uh, believe it or not what uh, Lucifer employs with uh, Eve. And uh, the problem with rationality, as it's been well said, is we don't recognize the limits of rationality. Mm. In fact, that is the point of rationality. So here are the three great debates. Uh, The first one uh, occurs in the third century. Um, A man named Arius proposed that Jesus, as the Son, was created as the Son by God the Father, Whereas uh, the, the church was, uh, um, as they were sorting out Jesus being fully God, fully man, and this great mystery, it's called the hypostatic union. Uh, the great mystery was, how could that be? And uh, most held to that he was generated by 
God the Father, or begotten is another way to put it, but he wasn't created because God is not created. And uh, so there was a great debate, uh, and Athanasius is the one who argued for that he was begotten, not made, not, not created. And so the point of the first great debate over Jesus' nature, it was settled with the Nicene Creed. Now, it was messy, it's true, um, it wasn't this simple. They got together and hey, let's, let, let us come and reason together. It was messy. It was political. But I think what was hammered out of that was beautiful. It was brilliant. It was an Nicene Creed. And the church continued to operate as one holy Catholic apostolic church, which is what the creed, by the way, affirms. One holy Catholic meaning universal, apostolic meaning we rely upon the teachings of the apostles, fully God, fully man. And that's where you also read, we believe in Jesus Christ, begotten of the Father, begotten, not made. Important little thing there when you recite that creed in church, if your church recites that. So that's the first debate. The second one is 700 years later. It actually occurs in 1056. And it was a debate between the uh, Eastern Patriarchs, Patriarch, and the Western Patriarch, which who was the Pope. And um, so two Popes going at it. Uh, let's just say they weren't the greatest of friends. And this was over the nature of the Holy Spirit and whether he proceeds from the Father or the Father and the Son. Now, in the Western half of the church, they believe the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and the Eastern just from the Father. Now, for most of us, we go, <laughs> but uh, it was felt in the West. This was particularly important for reaffirming or confirming the full deity and the personhood of the Spirit of God, much as the first debate over the full humanity of Jesus. And so they, uh, the Western church actually amended, added a phrase to the Nicene Creed that um, who, the Holy Spirit, we believe in the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And what came out of that was great schism. The great schism is between the East and the West. That's why you had the Orthodox today and the Catholic church. Both are sacramental and the difference with a schism, that's different than a split saying, uh, you're wrong, ADOs, I want have nothing to do with you. It's, it is a, uh, we disagree, but as one of the popes put it, but we believe the church must one day breathe with both lungs. Beautiful phrase. It's so actually in 2004, a mass was celebrated. Um, between the uh, two popes, patriarch, you might call it, for the Eastern Orthodox Church. They actually used the Catholic version of the Nicene Creed, and they were demonstrating that we've got to heal the schism for the church to be one holy Catholic apostolic church. So your first debate, Jesus' nature. Second debate, and that ends up being settled when the church remains one. The second debate, schism. The third debate is around 1500, and that's over human nature. 
And that debate created what Charles Taylor calls a Nova effect. Now, the first time I read that, I thought, oh, what? Yeah. You can Google it. It's an exploding star. And by that, it means that it exploded into hundreds of thousands of individualized takes on the gospel discipleship, all based on first, I think, first was Luther's tiny little assertion that when it comes to matters of faith, it's dependent upon the individuals in their conscience have the ability to decide for themselves the truth of scripture. To interpret for themselves. Now he did not mean what followed. He did not intend what followed. But in the sayings of quite a few, he opened a Pandora's box. And how how does that yeah how does that then get us back to really I'm thinking the idea of poetry, beauty. Mm-hmm. Where's yeah. that where's the connecting piece? What you have then is um the view of human nature. Uh, by the way, so you can go back to the church fathers where they read that scripture is never a matter of one's own individual interpretation. And he was saying uh, that essentially it was. Now, he wanted to reform the Catholic Church and had everyone just relaxed for a while. 70 of his 95 objections, reforms, were adopted by the Catholic Church within 30 years. But unfortunately, while he was in jail, um, his supporters took that as uh, their opportunity to break free and to take Catholic churches, strip them out of their, a lot of their icons and imagery, a lot of the beauty, because what he was appealing to was our rational abilities to be fully self-conscious of what we're thinking and to rely upon our reason to, to interpret Scripture. And while reason is certainly important, the older view that wisdom is received down through the generations, there is a kind of a received wisdom was jettisoned slowly but surely. First with uh, the Luther, the Luther's followers who initially called themselves evangelical to attempt to connect with the apostolic teachings, and they became protesters against Rome. So this wasn't a schism. This was, uh, we're right, Rome is wrong, period. In fact, you can see the artwork uh, Rome is depicted as the great whore of Babylon. Uh, yeah, that's that's a little different than what you saw in the, the uh, schism between East and West. So once you have this great whore of Babylon, then you have this growing feeling in Europe and then in America that uh, uh, all things Rome are, are horrible. In fact, they're apostate, um, so on and so forth. Now, what does this have to do with beauty? It has this. Human nature before Luther and before 1500, it was assumed 
that we operate by our loves. We are what we love because God is what he loves because he is love. If love didn't exist, I mean, if God didn't exist, love wouldn't exist. So we are what we love. And what we love is sparked by what we find to be beautiful. Beauty attracts, delights and attracts us so that what we experience is beautiful, we imagine is good, and if it's good, it's true. Say that again. I'll put it this way, Pat. <clears throat> I know listeners, there's a lot to listen to. Just stop the recording every once in a while and make notes. You can do that with this. It's, it's amazing what you can do with this recording. <laughs> We're made in the image of God. In Psalm 115, verse 3, it says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he delights in. Augustine famously uh, translated that, Love God and do what you want to do. You know why? Because ultimately you're going to do what you love. Because mm -hmm. God does. That's why in Scripture, the emphasis is upon ordering our loves and loving the things that God loves in the order in which he loves them. I remember years ago talking with a pastor. He's a wonderful guy. But we were having one of those quiet kind of conversations and he said you know i'm really struggling with that i'm a people pleaser well the conversation ended in a good place for him recognizing unless he slays that demon that ultimately what he'll love is pleasing his church and he will cave to whatever is necessary to please his parishioners. There's nothing wrong with loving people and there's nothing wrong with trying to serve them. But people pleasing is an entirely different thing. Sure. And in the helping professions, it is a major problem because you want to serve, but it becomes people pleasing. He loved that. He recognized he, his love was out of order. Now, because of that, we are what we love. And what we love is what we find to be beautiful, what we experience to be beautiful. And what we experience to be beautiful, we delight in, attracts, and we imagine it is good. And if we imagine it is good, it's true. So the human nature sequence is this, where we love, and then it goes beauty, good, true. The Enlightenment that followed in with Luther and then the Reformers in the Enlightenment is we start with what's true. And we think through what's true. We start at the back end of human nature. And so what happens is the beauty of the gospel is pretty much discarded for the truth and the rationalism of the gospel and what came out of that there was a whole cottage industry called worldview and if you can think right you'll act right here's a little tip off by the way so 
Augustine famously wrote the Enchideron, which is, uh, became a catechism for the church for several hundred years. And it, his, it was his, um, I think it was like 29 or 30 chapters on uh, the, theolo- the virtues of faith, hope, and love. But in the end, he said, but when we ask whether or not someone's a good person, we don't ask what they believe or what they hope, but what they love. Mm. Now, why do you say that? I think it's the accurate understanding of human nature. Exactly. And by the way, you know, what you love will ultimately be what you hope and what you believe. We live in a world that if you say, for example, want to join a church, you take you through some sort of orientation. That's often, here's what we believe. Here's right, our right. doctrine. So if you subscribe to our doctrine, well, now as we're finding out in, all sorts of faith traditions right across the boards. A whole lot of people who believe all sorts of supposedly right doctrine, who uh, leave rather, let's just say, very troubling private lives. And um, so go ahead. Well, yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like what's true, again, to clarify, because you're saying a lot of things that I'm sure haven't been heard or processed before. But if someone's listening to this and kind of having this introduction, what you're saying is not, of course, that the true, you know, good, beautiful, that order, there's not like something inherently wrong about that ordering, but it is not in line with human nature. And so if you are seeking a rationalist approach, that's it's sure it's it's okay but it's not in line with human nature and so you're going to have problems because you are operating in a way in which human nature does not operate that's right it's it's yeah it's like it's not saying gravity is right or wrong it's just a law of physics it's that's right yeah yeah it's saying i agree with gravity but i'm still walking off that roof right um the that's a really good point, Pat, and I'm glad you took us back to that. Um, human nature drives the way you act in when the, in you know, when you're not conscious of the way you're acting. When it, we, we call it unedited behavior, which is 95% of your behavior. So it's assuming that you are a hundred percent self-conscious or, or aware of your behaviors, which is that's neuroscience has undermined that. That's, this is why McGilchrist says Western Christianity is active in undermining itself because it's taken the flesh and turned it back into word. In other words, the, our bodies telling God's story back to our brains telling God's story. Not like how Jamie Smith puts it. I like how Jamie Smith has put it that we've reduced, we've reversed our view of human nature to we are brains on a stick. And so if we think right, we'll act right. But to get there, you have to be very edited. And here's, here's an example. So have you ever heard the phrase, the good, the true, the beautiful? Yes. Yes. Where have you heard that? 
isn't isn't that have something to do with Greek philosophy or Roman philosophy? There you go. Yeah. So here's a fascinating thing. It's the Greeks who invented the definitive article. Now we have to help a lot of people don't know their grammar uh, very yes. well. Yeah. My grammar's still no, my grammar's still alive. No, I'm kidding. See, that's <laughs> what I mean by uh, the article the definite article is the. Yeah. We know the so, abstract, right? That's right. So they turned good, true, and beautiful into abstractions. And here's what I mean by that. It doesn't fit human nature. And here's what I mean by that. So Kathy, my wife, fixes a sumptuous dinner. And I sit down and I say, Kathy, this really looks like the beautiful. <laughs> and then as I eat, I go, man, this is the good. And I look at her and I say, you are, you, this is, this is the true. See, we don't talk, we don't, we don't naturally talk that way. You know why? Because it's not human nature. Human nature would say, this is beautiful. So what the Greeks did is they took, and even check the order, the good, the true, the beautiful. They put the beautiful on the rear end. Plato taught if you meditate as you take in your mind and just contemplate the good, it will leach through your pores. Well, that's not... So let's go back to the garden. And um, Adam is, first of all, he is in a setting that the Septuagint translates Genesis 1 where it says, and God thought it was good, and uses the word beautiful, which is a legitimate use of that word. So the entire creation was beautiful. That's what Adam experiences, beauty. Out of that, it is good because they're synonymous. So as he is playing with the animals and naming them, and so... If God comes along and tells him later on, this is my good earth, he would go, yeah, that's exactly how I've experienced it. And having him actually play with the animals and name them, he also has this sense of, um, this is beautiful. And it is, it is really good, truly is good. Why? Um, it's God, I hate to say it. It's almost like something's missing. You know what's missing? What's that? Now, well, listeners, you just got to bear up here a second. He was never aroused sexually. Then God puts him to sleep, wakes up. There's Eve, and he is aroused. But they first, they see one another, and this is beauty. This is very good beauty. So what do they do? They get to know one another. They get to know one another. That's right. That's how the Bible puts it. Here's my whole point. So the experience is good. It's really good. In fact, it's so good. It's like Chinese. You know, an hour later, you want some more. And... <laughs> So if God comes along and says, uh, hey, you know, 
What do you think about that? Is that you think that's true? That you guys are made for each other? True? Are you crazy? They wouldn't say to God. They would say respectfully, "Oh, oh my goodness! Of course, this is true." Now, how many times do you see someone? I have. I've seen him come to faith. The biggest thing, biggest thing they wrestle with is is it really true what God says about gender. Hmm. What the Bible says about gender. So what we've created is a cottage industry of worldview experts that will teach you the truth about what God says. What's missing? Beauty. Poetry. Yeah. That's, and poetry that's was initially sung. And then we that's where we get our word in song, enchant. Poetry is enchanting. Our bodies are enchanting. There's a couple things to take away from this, Pat. We'll keep it. We know this has been a lot to swallow here today, listeners. But first of all, this is why we read in Proverbs, husbands, may your wife, her love and your love for her always intoxicate you. May her breasts ever satisfy you. If our bodies tell God's story, why does God single out a female's breasts? I'm not not even going to take a shot at answering that. <laughs> you have to go to First Peter, and where Peter writes, one of the mysteries of the gospel is Christ, through His Word implanted, His flesh and body and blood through the through the Eucharist. By penetrating his church, his bride turns his words into milk for newborns. That's what the church does in union, nuptial union with Christ, our bridegroom. What part of the female body tells that part of the story? The breasts. Can you imagine why Jesus finds in his bride her breasts? are dazzling. Hmm. Why is it that we cover those up at the beach because we're fallen? Because, go to the garden, if we do what we love, ultimately, and love is based upon what we find delights, that is, that which we find to be beautiful, beauty attracts delights and attracts, we deem it to be good, and that it's true. Ever notice how Lucifer deceives Eve and then Adam? He uses rationality, and it says, as he takes that fruit of the tree of good and evil, which they are not to eat, it says of Eve, and she found it delightful. That's what initially drew, drew her. It was delightful. But because in obedience from God at that point, she hadn't tasted it. Lucifer uses rationality to deceive her. It's called the central thrust of Lucifer's work all the way back to when he fell in eternity past. He broke the meaningful connection between words and reality. 
he broke the meaningful connection. In Ezekiel, you read in Isaiah, in eternity past, he said, I will ascend to the Most High. I will be like God six, seven times. He says, I. All those words are truly words, and words truly mean something. But he broke the meaningful connection between words and reality. Those words had no connection to reality. And one of the terrible tragedies of the fall is we can use words, God, faith, Bible, discipleship, salvation, that have lost their meaningful connection to reality. And that, my friend, is what began 500 years ago in a big way when, first with Luther, but then in the Reformation and the Enlightenment, the self-conscious individuals can use words as they understand them. Not as creeds and councils and scripture and history use them, but as I understand them. So I, with the aid of just the Holy Spirit in the Bible and the power of observation, can determine what scripture says. Well, what you just opened is a Pandora's box of millions of individuals can feel with the best of intentions that their understanding of scripture demands that they start a new church which is what I did in 1987. Now, by the way, if you uh, ever want a visual of this, Pat, so not too many months ago, a good family friend of ours passed away. And she, her first memorial service was in Kingwood, West Virginia, a little over maybe a two, three hour drive from here. So Kathy and I went to Kingwood I always look for the markers, the you know, historic markers, and this town was founded in 1800. It is, as so many small towns in West Virginia, a small main street that today is mostly boarded up, always a, a, a nails store seems to be there. You can have your nails done. It seems yeah. to be a tobacco store, certainly a liquor store somewhere. But here's the thing I noticed, and Kathy and I were talking about, is we uh, had to go through twisty, turny roads. And of course, way out somewhere, not too far from the little hotel we were in, is a Walmart, and uh, which contributes to almost the complete evacuation of the uh, former downtown. But every time you turned a corner here and there, rolling through the hills, you would see yet another small church dying. And it's fascinating that it's in 1790 is the beginning of what's called the evangelical movement, which really hits full stride in 1800, first with the Cane Ridge revivals. As Tim Keller pointed out, the late Tim Keller, by 1830s, 35, uh, its cultural influence was spent. But in that interim, it would plant... I don't know, hundreds of thousands of little churches of people just saying, no, Mike had a better idea in that one passage, so we're starting another church. Mm. The church where I did the memorial service, a Methodist church, of course, can't afford a pastor anymore. She comes in from Morgantown. But I looked up on the, uh, the old little plaque 
And they had 17 in attendance last week. And they're old. Yep. And they're, they're, they're wonderful people. And they are saved. But any notion of coming into the fullness of salvation, of our bodies telling God's story, especially in that part of the town, their bodies are primarily chimneys for how much they smoke. I know it sounds terrible, but it's, it's just simply true. And they're well-meaning. But I, I said to Kathy, this is, this is the aftermath of what, incredibly, Ralph Waldo Emerson discussed in 1844. And that's a, we'll talk about this another time, but Emerson gave an address in Boston where he said, this marvelous experiment in human nature over the last 30, 40 years and what it has done. He liked it for this reason. And you're going to love this phrase. Emerson was not a Christian. He, I believe he was a universalist or an agnostic. But he was all for, he was all entirely against what he called organized religion. Ever heard that before? <laughs> yes. So what he said he had loved about this explosion of individualized takes and the hundreds of thousands of little churches that started, each with their own take on the gospel and discipleship, was... Uh, he said its success is that it rode, he didn't use the exact phrase, but it capitalized on the spirit of America, individualism. So he loved it. But he also felt it was over as a cultural influence. They would expend its energy over the next 150 years in terms of conversions, because it appealed to individualism, pragmatism, and private judgment as to what scripture says. But it would recede in terms of having any sort of public voice. This is most evident, by the way, in terms of Methodism, which was at its peak in 1855 and uh, created its own set of uh, vacation cities where you could get away from the big bad world. Um, Bethany Beach, look at the names. Rehoboth Beach, which today in Delaware is one of the largest gay communities, um, and Hollywood. Yes, Hollywood started as a Methodist summer resort. <laughs> wow. Dry town. They were all dry back then. And um, they just, it simply wasn't, uh, it didn't fit human nature. And all of this is what Dallas Willard felt in the private conversation once. He said, this is all a lost cause. It's a lost cause. And so the first great debate was settled. That's why we recite the Nicene Creed. The second debate over the spirit, Holy Spirit's nature, attempting to be settled. The third great debate is 500 years old, and it led to an explosion of individualized takes on discipleship and the gospel. And it leaves the question, can all the king's horses and all the king's men ever put this Humpty Dumpty back together again? <laughs>